Amen. So if you'd like to take out the Pew Bibles or your Bible app or the Bible that you brought with you, we're going to read a section from Luke chapter 6 today. So you can go about three quarters of the way toward the back. You typically find the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke chapter 6. We're going to read verse 27 through 31. This is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew calls it the Sermon on the Mount. Luke calls it the Sermon on the Plain. That suggests that maybe Jesus said some of these things many times as he went around the countryside with his disciples. And they present this in different ways for a reason. So this is how Luke presents this teaching of Jesus. Luke 6, starting in verse 27. He says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. The problem is that everything Jesus just said goes against everything about the way this world works. <laughs> right? So it brings up some real questions. Does he mean it? Let's assume he does. If he means it, is he telling us just to ignore injustice and abuse? Is he saying, just sit back and take it? Allow yourselves to be mistreated. From what you know about the entire scope of scripture, what God has done on behalf of his people, from what you know about Jesus's ministry and his words, is he really saying, just sit back and watch and let evil have its way with you? What do you think? Yeah, of course not. I think we know the answer is no. Maybe we just don't know why, right? Yeah, so this is a really hard passage, but I am convinced, one, that he is serious, that he does mean it. I think we can understand it, and I think we can do it. And I think that if we do, we're gonna find that we will be blessed, that it is for our good. Now, what I think is interesting, it, you might think the hardest thing in this passage is that command to love your enemy. I don't think that's the hardest thing. I think I can make the case that there are a couple more difficult things that we have to deal with here. And then once we deal with those difficult things, I think we'll see that loving our enemies, it begins to make all the sense in the world. So the first problem that we have to deal with is a language problem, not a translation problem. It's a real problem with a very common word. And this is the word that I'm convinced, and I mean this, I am convinced this is the worst word in the English language. It's the word love. I am convinced that the word love is the worst word in the English language because it is used so often for so many different things that in our culture, it's effectively lost its meaning. A couple weeks ago, I was watching, uh, all right, it's confession time. A couple weeks ago, I was watching an episode of a reality television show with my sweet wife. And on this show, there was a young man who was invited to date 30 different women all at the same time. 
fine, you can judge me. Astros aren't on yet, I don't know what else there is to watch, okay? So. But if you're familiar with the show, which it sounds like some of you are, which means I'm not the only one who's seen it, I'm just saying. But if you're familiar with the show, you might know that the expectation is that in the finale, in the last episode, that bachelor is going to propose to one of those 30 women. Now, as you get down to the final weeks of this competition for love, it's down to three women. And this bachelor said that any of them could be his fiance in the last week. Because in his own words, he said that he had fallen in love with three women at the same time. Those were his words. Now, was he actually in love with three women at the same time? No, of course he wasn't. And in the end, he realized that. He even kind of through his own words came to realize that he actually perhaps really did love one of them. He was just really into the other two also, right? So he's really confused, but honestly, like I feel bad for him because how, how could he not be? Y'all, he is a young man who's been raised in a culture that has robbed him of a true understanding of what love is. It's robbed him of really understanding the most beautiful and powerful and meaningful thing in all creation. It's told him that love is like how you feel in the moment. It's all about attraction. It's all about the flutters. The poor guy doesn't know what love is. So look, you guys know I love Star Wars. And look, I don't like Star Wars. But what other word can I use? I love it. You guys know I love the Astros. Amen, Bob? I don't like the Astros. The Astros have been part of my life since I, was, since I remember. But what other word do I have to use? I love Carlos Correa. If you know anything about the Astros, you get that. I don't see myself rooting for him anytime soon, but I love the man. The question is, does my relationship with any of those loves, does it even belong in the same category as my relationship with my wife or with my kids or with my God? It better not, right? So we have a problem. We need a better word. Well, there's not one in the English language, but the Greek gives us one. And many of you are already really familiar with it. It's the word agape. And the best way to define this word is not to tell you that it means love. The best way is to just use this word and to show you how it's applied in scripture. So this is from Luke's gospel. Uh, this is the first time he uses the word agape and it comes in chapter three. Uh, let me read it. It says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Uh, and as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I agape, and with you I am well pleased. Now, John's gospel tells the Jesus story very differently, but the first time John uses the word agape also occurs in chapter three of his gospel, and it's really significant. For God so agape the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So already in two passages, 
you can see that this word is describing something about God's relationship with his own son and with you. Actually, the way the language says it, it extends to all creation, to everything that he's made. In fact, the first time this word ever appears in the Bible in the Old Testament, it doesn't describe the relationship between a man and a woman. It's used to describe the relationship in Genesis 22 between a father and a son. And it's a story with a lot of foreshadowing. This is no superficial word. There is weight to this word and we can't miss it. There's more to it. This is how Paul uses the word in 1 Corinthians 13. Agape is patient. Agape is kind. You've heard this before, but hear it as if you're hearing it for the first time. Agape is patient. Agape is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Agape does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It protects. It always trusts always hopes, always perseveres. Agape never fails. You want to give your kids and grandkids a gift, especially if they're not yet married when they're considering somebody who's going to make a lifelong commitment to them? Is that, does that describe the love they have for each other? Does that describe the love they receive from the other person? And does that describe the love they give? For those of you who are married, does that describe the love you receive? And does that describe the love that you give? In one of John's later letters, he writes this. This is also another John 3.16, but this is 1 John 3.16. He says, this is how we know what agape is, that Jesus Christ laid his life down for us. And we ought to lay our life down for our brothers and sisters. And he goes on to say, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the agape of God be in that person? So dear children, man, I wish our world could hear this. Dear children, let us not agape with words or speech, but with action and in truth. Did any of what I just read sound like the kind of love that our culture and our world promotes? So to take Jesus's command to love our enemy seriously, we need a biblical view on love. We have to know what Jesus meant when he uses the word agape, real love, God's love. And nowhere in any of these verses is love described as a feeling or an attraction. Both Greek and Hebrew have other words for that. The Song of Songs, full of some crazy language about a really intimate relationship. It uses many words to describe that kind of relationship. Nowhere in these verses is love defined as a feeling or an attraction. It is defined by action. And it's the kind of action that seeks to fix what was broken, to find something that's been lost. This kind of love is about a restored relationship. And it starts with the one between a father and his children. So real love is not what I say or what I feel about a person or a thing in the moment. It's what I'm willing to sacrifice what I'm willing to give over time in order to be in a healthy relationship with them. God's love puts the needs of others before my own. That means that if I am loving as God loves, that I am no longer number one. 
So there's obviously a lot more that we could say about love. That's enough for today. And that's problem number one. But there is another problem we have to wrestle with. Uh, When we hear this invitation from Jesus to love our enemies, we put ourselves in the position of the lover, of the forgiver, right? We are to love our enemies. And that's good. We are certainly called to love and forgive. That's what he says. But wrestle with this for a minute. There is good and evil. There is right and wrong. And sometimes it's that simple. But I would argue not that often. Sometimes clear and obvious right is up against clear and obvious wrong. But not that often. The world we live in is much more nuanced than that. Y'all, I am rarely, I have never, I have never, boldly say this, I have never been a pure and innocent dove who has been standing opposed by somebody who is the embodiment of total evil. It's always more nuanced than that. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he's a Russian author. Uh, He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1970. He famously said this. He said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. We are quick to forget that darkness lies within us, that sometimes I'm the one who's the enemy. I'm the one in need of agape and forgiveness. And I'm not the only one. Do y'all realize that in our sin, in our rebellion against God, scripture tells us that we are enemies of God. Sabrina read this to you last week from Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own agape for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But Paul goes on. He says, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? While we were God's enemies, how did God treat us? By loving us. By loving us enough to put our lives and our relationship with him before his own. When Jesus hung on that cross, y'all, he did it even for the enemies who were nailing him to it. He died on that cross for the enemies who were beating him and mocking him in the moment. And I really think that when I struggle to understand how I could possibly forgive or love an enemy, what I'm failing to remember, like what I'm failing to recognize is that God has forgiven and loves me, an enemy. Someone whose sin nailed him to that cross. Someone whose sin still mocks him 2,000 years later. Y'all, every one of us has been wicked and ungrateful, rebellious and disobedient. Every one of us are a part of that story. But we are adopted children of God who were once enemies. And how has God treated his enemies? By dying for them so that they may live. He died for us so that we may live. 
So I think those are two of the big hurdles to understanding Jesus's radical take on love, that we are to love our enemies. Notice we didn't talk about the word enemy. I didn't wanna define the word enemy because sometimes that can narrow this down, right? Anybody in opposition to us. So the two big hurdles for us first, that we, just, we have to understand what Jesus means by love. It's not about feelings and emotions. It's a decisive action that seeks to make things right. And the second hurdle that we've got to overcome is we've got to remember that we were enemies of God. And that even then, he loved us by taking decisive action in order to make things right. Now, Jesus gave his life as an atonement for sin on behalf of his enemies. That's what Jesus does. I'm not Jesus. I'm not the savior. I don't have the power to atone for my own sin, much less atone for the sins of my enemies. But with his strength in me, with the power of his spirit in me, scripture says I can do immeasurably more than I could even imagine. That means that I could even become a person who can learn to love and forgive my enemies. So the question, the question is how? Well, Jesus tells us, he starts by telling us to bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. As with all things, Jesus in our model, is our model and this too starts with prayer because that's exactly what Jesus did. What did he do when he was hanging on that cross? As he was dying, he prayed. And who did he pray for? He prayed for his enemies. He prayed for the ones who nailed him to the cross because they just didn't know what they were doing. Two weeks ago, I invited us all to try something that for two weeks, just to pray for somebody who's in opposition to you, somebody who you either think is an enemy or they think of you that way. And as you pray for them to remember your place as a child of God who was once an enemy of God, remember his love and his mercy for you and then simply pray that for the other person. It starts with prayer and I recognize that's really hard. It's very hard to start doing that. It's hard to even know what to say. When we're done here uh, for our prayer to close this out, I'm gonna read you a prayer that Sabrina wrote. I asked her to do a spiritual formation exercise and she wrote a prayer. We're gonna post this prayer online. If you don't know where to start in praying for an enemy or praying for somebody in opposition to you, print this off and start here. We've given you words that you can pray until those words can become your own. So it starts with prayer, but Jesus continues. He says more. He says, if someone slaps you on one cheek, Turn to them the other also. The language is actually present to them your other cheek. If someone slaps you on one cheek, present to them your other cheek as well. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Okay, I did this at the 930 service. So I'm just gonna go for it. Who here has ever slapped somebody? <laughs> I would say on the whole, the 930 service is a little more honest than you guys. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm just basing that on this one day, but you know, so far, some of you were honest, that's good, yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying this to sound holier than thou. Uh, I don't think I've ever actually slapped somebody. I don't think I've ever been in a physical fight, but man, have I slapped people with words. Have I thrown verbal punches? And I'll tell you with my wife, 
The worst one is not the words, it's the silence. That can be just as bad. Y'all, in Jesus' time, a slap on the cheek, it's a sign of disrespect. It's a way of putting somebody beneath you. It's an attack on their pride. It's an attack on their humanity. And I know that's exactly what my words have done. And the ones that I remember the most are the ones that I wished I could immediately take back. What if the other person gave me the chance to do that? See, human nature has this tendency to react in a couple different ways when we're being attacked. Uh, some react by just being passive. And some of us are just naturally passive. Um, the bad thing is that abusers, uh, they can often recognize that and then they take advantage. Jesus doesn't think that's okay. Uh, sometimes we're passive because uh, maybe it's just, we feel like it's easier to accept abuse because uh, it's gonna be more painful or it's harder to stand up to them or to get up and leave. Jesus is not okay with any of that. And I'm telling you, if you find yourself in either of those situations, it is not okay. And you need to reach out and let somebody know. Jesus is not telling you just to sit there and keep getting beat over and over again. Others react by being vindictive, by striking back, by escalating. A slap on a cheek becomes a punch to the gut, right? The spiral continues. In the Old Testament, Jesus quotes in the Gospel of Matthew, the Old Testament, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That sounds really harsh. That was a limitation. Because in every other culture, an eye for execution, right? You steal something, you're killed. The Old Testament is the first document in history that says, no, an eye for an eye, equal. Don't be vengeful. There's equal punishment for the crime. Do justice. Jesus takes it a step further. Sometimes there's this health, unhealthy mix, this toxic mix of the two. We, we can be really passive on the outside, but what's happening inside of us? How we're burning with anger, right? Can be vengeful anger. We're passive until we're not. And then what happens? Boom, right? Just blows up. And y'all, these all have incredibly destructive outcomes. Nothing good ever comes from any of this. Neither passive inaction nor vindictive action, they don't work. They both just lead to continued misery and the world stays the same. Actually, the world keeps getting worse. That's not what God wants for his children. <laughs> what Jesus offers us is the exact opposite. He's offering us, he's inviting us into a life where we can actively oppose injustice on the outside, but be composed and at perfect peace on the inside. So you might ask, how is turning the other cheek actively opposing injustice? Isn't that just giving them another chance to hit you again? See, I don't think it is. Because knowing what we know about the scope of scripture, about God fighting for those who are suffering injustice, everything we know from Jesus's life and ministry, there is simply no way that he's encouraging us to just allow ourselves to be victimized over and over again. There's no way. We interpret scripture with scripture and we take this one verse and we hold it up to the light of the entire biblical narrative. There's no way God is saying, just tolerate evil and injustice, it's fine. 
So what's going on? Remember when I said that I've slapped or thrown punches with words, the most memorable ones were what? The ones that I wish I could take back immediately. Y'all, that's what Jesus means when he says, turn the other cheek. Present to them the other cheek. Reset the playing field and give them a chance to try again. Don't cower and keep getting hit over and over. You might notice, and I don't know if Jesus meant this or not, but we only have two cheeks, <laughs> right? So I don't know if he's saying give him one more chance, but I'm convinced he's not saying just keep letting him beat you over and over again. But also don't rise up and hit back. Don't escalate. Instead, give the offender the chance to start over, to try again. Because y'all, the truth is not always, but sometimes the reason people lash out is because it was pent up, right? Maybe they felt cornered. They didn't know what to do. Maybe they were just afraid. Some of the dumbest things I've ever done have been because I was ignorant and afraid. First John 4 says, there is no fear in agape. Perfect agape drives out fear. So take the opportunity to drive out their fear. Calm their fear. Invite them to try again. Disarm them by doing something that's unexpected. Give them a chance at redemption. Give them a chance this time to kiss your cheek rather than to strike it. Because you see, real love, it always hopes for reconciliation, for the relationship to be healed and to be restored. But Love and forgiveness doesn't require reconciliation because you can only control your choice to love and forgive. You can only control you. You can't control how the other will respond. But reconciliation is always the hope for the lover and the forgiver. And that happens when a slap on one cheek becomes a kiss on the other. A slap on the cheek is an attack on my pride. So the question is, can I swallow my pride? Can I get over myself and let them try again? Because a slap can only be replaced with a kiss if we are brave enough, bold enough, secure enough in who we are in Jesus Christ that we can forgive and reset the playing field. Y'all, I'm telling you, if we do that, that's when the world begins to change. That's what Jesus did and that's what his apostles did. We see it all throughout the book of Acts. And there's a reason what started with a rabbi and 12 followers is now one and a half to two billion people today. It'll change the world. Through the way of Jesus and the power of the spirit, that's how the world will be renewed and restored. One relationship at a time. So you can pray, you can disarm the offender with an opportunity to try again. But there's one final way that we can grow as a disciple who trusts and obeys Jesus, even when he says crazy things, like love your enemy. Uh, look at this in verse uh, 31. Let's all say it together. Actually take it down and now let's say it together. Because you already know it. <laughs> do unto others as you would have them do to you. Y'all, the entire world knows that verse from the Bible, Right? but I'm convinced that maybe even we don't really understand it. Because what it doesn't say, it doesn't say get offended when somebody does something to you that you wouldn't do to them. 
That's not what it says. It says, do to others as you would have them do to you. And it comes in the context of loving your enemy. And that's important. So when you think about how to apply that verse to your life, you actually do it in a pretty counterintuitive way. If you want to apply that verse to your life, apply it to the moment when you were at your worst. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Apply that verse to the moment when you said the terrible thing. The moment when you slapped first, either with a disrespectful open hand or with powerfully destructive words. Apply that verse to the time when you sought more than you were owed, when you were vindictive or vengeful. Apply that verse to yourself at your worst and then offer to your offender the mercy that you would want from those you have offended. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Y'all, if you think about this rationally, is the world ever going to be renewed and restored as nations continue to throw bombs and fight over land and power and resources? Is that gonna make the world a better place? Seems to be doing the opposite, right? So apply that to personal relationships. Will the world ever be renewed and restored and made better by revolving lawsuits? You sue me, so I'm gonna sue you back for even more. Will the world ever be restored and renewed and made good again through my vengeance by escalating the fight, returning a slap with a punch? Of course it won't. We know that. We know that it won't get better that way. We know that cycle of violence continues to just drag us down. But we often live as if there's just no other way. Trust and obey Jesus because he's telling you there is another way. His gospel reminds us that we were enemies of God who have been made his children again. And by telling his children to love their enemies, he is inviting us into a new world. He's inviting us into a new reality, into a new way of life. He's giving us the opportunity to seek for others the justice and the blessing that has been given to us. He's inviting us to live a life that's free from the bitterness and the conflict and the offense that so easily rises up within us when others try to hurt us. How do you feel deep in your core when somebody hurts you? Does it feel good? And what happens when you wake up the next day? Has it gotten better or worse? And the day after that, and the day after that, that is not the life that Jesus wants for his children. He does not want us to live bitter and in conflict and offended all the time. Y'all, I'm telling you, in the entire world, we should be the most difficult people to offend. The church should be the place that understands sinners the best because the gospel has revealed that sinfulness in us. I can't believe that in the midst of all the chaos in our society, everybody fighting and everybody back and forth, that the church often stands offended by the world rather than compassionate because we understand sinners the best because it's me. As an individual, I shouldn't be so offended 
when a mean person is mean to me. (laughs) I shouldn't be so upset when a rude person is rude. As a church, we shouldn't be so offended when a lost world acts lost. When a world that rejects Jesus lives as if it rejects Jesus. Why are we so offended by that? Instead, we should be compassionate. We should first recognize our own rejection of God. That we were the lost. And then extend to them that same helping hand that was extended to us to offer what was offered to us, to pull them out of the mud and the muck and that endless spiral and pull them into the marvelous light of God's love and mercy and grace. Now, Jesus's words this morning, they're not to be dismissed. They're not crazy. He means it. And what he's actually describing is the way the world is supposed to work. And he's describing the way the world will work forever. He's not talking to nations He's talking to you, he's talking to me, his church. It starts with us. Through the power of his Holy Spirit at work in us, Jesus is transforming us into a people who are resilient and tough. Y'all, Jesus is not peaceful hippie trying to tell us just to love and let ourselves be abused. That is not the Jesus of scripture. He is firm and strong actively opposing injustice, but doing it with complete peace. He is making us resilient and tough, a people who can handle the sticks and the stones, a people who can handle the words that are meant to hurt us. That is what the father is like. That's what the son is like. So why should his children be any different? Amen? Like I told you, I wanna close this uh, with a prayer, but I wanna close it with the prayer that Sabrina wrote. Um, I won't go through the whole spiritual practice of it, but I will just read the prayer and then we are gonna post this prayer online. Again, if you have someone in your life that is just in opposition to you and you just don't even know how you could, you don't know how you could even find the words to start praying for them, start here. Print this out, you can use these words until these words can become your own. So will you join me as we pray? Lord Jesus, following your command, we lift up our enemies. You know them by name. Those for whom we have hatred in our hearts, those for whom we harbor hostility, those who have wounded us. Soften our hearts, strengthen us now that we would do good to those who hate us. Bless those who curse us and pray for those who mistreat us. And in order to do this, in order to actually say these words to you genuinely, we ask for the Holy Spirit to saturate our lives. Forgive us for holding on to anything that could hinder our prayers. By the Holy Spirit's power and might, send your love flowing through us. God of mercy, bless our enemies. Orchestrate events in their lives that will soften their hearts so they can recognize their deep need for you. Help them to discover your comfort in anger your comfort in their heartbreak, your comfort in their grieving, in their fear and in their pain. As you extend mercy to us, we pray to be merciful to them, that they would in turn be merciful to others. As you speak to us of your purity and righteousness, speak to their hearts as well to seek your justice and peace. So this morning, right now, we take a moment 
We take a moment to release any unforgiveness that sits within us. To release thoughts of revenge. To give over to you hateful emotions that quench your spirit in our hearts. And we receive your wisdom and courage as we seek how to bless, love, and pray for our enemies. So silently now, we say to you, I forgive blank. And privately and silently, we fill in that blank. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to love and we fill in the blank with that name of somebody that we need your help to truly love. And we pray this in the strong and saving name of Jesus Christ and all God's children said, amen.